0: Hello, this is Sam Leith. I'm afraid I'm still away, but just for the meantime, here's an old episode from the archives. It's Tom Holland from 2019 talking about his marvellous book, Dominion. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined in the run-up to Christmas by the historian Tom Holland, whose new book is called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, I think is the subtitle. Is that it a subtitle? Is. Yes. yes. And it's a book about the history of Christianity and its effect on the whole of Western culture. So a modest project.
1: Yes. And the fact that it, it's called The Making of the Western Mind and the fact that there's barely a hint on the cover that it's actually about Christianity kind of points you to the way in which... Christian influence, particularly in Britain perhaps, but generally across the West has become quite occluded. It's something that the kind of people who who, who publish beautiful history books tend not to be entirely comfortable with. But the thesis of the book essentially is that despite that, if the West is a goldfish bowl and we're the goldfish, then the waters that we swim in essentially are Christian, even though we, we may not appreciate it. And in fact, shortly after I finished the book... A kind of even better metaphor hit me, which was prompted by watching Chernobyl the a drama series that i'm sure some of your listeners may have watched and in that series there was a, a scene where two of the main characters are looking at the radioactivity leaking from the reactor and you can literally see it because the air is being ionized but of course the impact of chernobyl is experienced in kiev and scandinavia and cumbrian hill farms by people who who don't see the radioactivity but are nevertheless breathing it in and being changed by it and and by that i don't I'm not going kind of Richard Dawkins. I'm not saying that Christianity makes your hair drop out and kills you, but that it it continues in the air, it remains in the air. You breathe it in, and you don't even realize it, and, and it changes you, and affects you.
0: You do carry that metaphor through the book on several occasions. You talk about yeah. breathing in the dust. Yeah,
1: but you made your name as a historian of pagans. You know, you pagan, historian. of course, is 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 itself a Christian terminology, and and this is part of why I wanted to write this book was that writing about classical antiquity and essentially realizing that words like pagan, words like religion, words like secular were hugely problematic to use in a pre-Christian context because they are so rooted in a kind of the seedbed of Christian theology and history that to apply them to pre-Christian periods risks massive anachronism. And this was part of a kind of learning process that, whereas when I began writing uh, books about pre-Christian classical history, I had a kind of vague sense that the modern West remained profoundly shaped by that. I've kind of changed my mind on that. I don't actually think we are directly influenced by it at all. And I think that insofar as we are influenced by classical antiquity, it's it's, it's an influence that has been predominantly mediated by, by Christianity. And it, it's almost impossible to see back through this kind of haze of christian influence back to what the world was like before christianity its, it's influence i think is that profound
0: so was there a sort of a sense which writing about classical antiquity and as you say earlier on being an enthusiast for
1: dinosaurs well, it it's was all a... about
0: power and violence
1: power and, and, and violence. glamour exactly. and charisma in that stuff, which, you know, which i which i responded to I, you know I, from a very very early age that is what i responded to i mean i mentioned a, an episode in in the introduction about going to sunday school And there being an illustrated Bible of Adam and Eve with all the animals that God had created, which included a a brachiosaur. And I knew that no human being had had ever seen a brachiosaur because it was a a cause of constant grief and (laughs) sorrow to me. Some of our American listeners uh, maybe... In. And, and and yet, for me, this was by far the most thrilling page in the whole of the Illustrated Bible because it had a dinosaur. And likewise, going on, you know, if I thought about Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate, I was wholly on the side of Pontius Pilate. The, the eagles, the togas, the glamour of it, the power, the charisma. And it was a kind of, I, I suppose, a kind of lazy, instinctive, youthful response to it. But when you write about it and you think about the implications of what... What did it mean to live in a world unmediated by Christian assumptions? I just found it increasingly kind of alien and frightening. And was
0: it that the more you learnt about it, the more you realised this this is so different? Yeah. That this tells me something yeah. about...
1: Yeah. And and, and it, it's also, you know, kind of living in the present. And in a way, Christian assumptions have been making a comeback over the, the period that I've been writing books i mean not overtly but in the form of me too in the form of anti-colonialism anti-racism all these things which people just kind of assume are givens people don't say well why, why do we think this why do we think it's wrong for very powerful men to sexually abuse their inferiors why do we think it's wrong for for powerful states to throw their weight around you know none of these questions would have made any sense at all in the pre-christian world and the fact that we just assume that that these are givens reflects how profoundly Christian our intellectual and moral makeup is
0: we'll, we'll certainly get on to the because you know, this is a book that goes right from the very beginning right now but you you actually do start with the crucifixion itself the sort of central emblem and what's kind of I think it's a good illustration of the way in which these the inheritance is sort of semi-invisible to us or at least we're so shaped by it that you say in the early period the crucifixion Christians wouldn't have made much of the image of it. It would have been sort of occluded. It would have been it, something it, down it a low in the mix. because thing of horror it, and shame.
1: A yeah. thing of uh, utter horror and shame. And I think in a way we've become desensitised to what the cross means. For us, subliminally, it's a thing that vaguely conjures positive ideas so if you're if you're injured and you see a a white van with a red cross on it coming towards you you don't have to be a a, a christian to know that this is probably a good thing it's 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 a positive whereas for the romans the cross was the emblem par excellence of their right to torture and humiliate to death anyone who 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 gave them kind of any lip at all and it was such a disgusting death that it was regarded by the Romans as the fate that was peculiarly suited to rebellious slaves, because it wasn't just that you would you would suffer appalling pain. A, a, a crucifixion there was no standard way of of being crucified. It was an opportunity for the for the torturer to demonstrate his skill. So he might drive nails through your bones, tie you up with with rope. To, impale you, hang you upside down, whatever. And you would you, you would be unable to ward the birds off from pecking out your eyes or attacking your genitals and you would be suffering you know, pulling yourself up and down and your body would be bleeding and sweating. But your suffering would also be very, very public. And in a society where placed as heavy a premium on on kind of dignity as as the Romans did, this was horrifying. You became a kind of billboard for the power of the people who were who were killing you. And to all of this, we've 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 become desensitised. And and I had as well. And this was brought home to me when a few months into writing the book, I went to Iraq to make a film for Channel 4 about ISIS. And we went to a town that had just been liberated by the Kurds from ISIS, but they were still kind of a, a mile or so, so absolutely within striking distance. And this town had been um, full of Yazidis, who were a religious minority in Iraq, who were, were targeted with particular cruelty. And the men you know, the women notoriously were enslaved, but some of the men were, you know, men were killed and some of them were crucified. And to, to be in a town smashed to rubble, littered with corpses, exactly as the Romans would have served a town, and, and to know that people had, had imposed crucifixion on their victims in exactly the way that the Romans had imposed crucifixion, that the cross for the people who'd done this had none of the 2,000 year sediment of signification that it has for us. It opened this kind of great abyss of dread, as I, you know, kind of felt what it would be like to live in a world without that 2,000-year history, and I felt it like a kind of worm of dread in my in my intestines, which is exactly what the Romans. Why the Romans used it? Because it that, that was the, the emotion it was designed to inspire. And yet, the astonishing thing about Christianity is that it it turns this emblem of imperial power into an emblem of the opposite—an emblem of the power of the victim over the victimizer.
0: And is that the sort of central turn? I mean, because obviously Christianity, as we'll you now, I hope we'll go on to talk a bit more about, has hey. taken. All sorts of forms, you know, it's been intensely hierarchical and money-oriented, it's been essentially communist, it's been, you know, it's had all sorts of different redactions, Um, universalist, it's been, you know, particularist, It's, it's had all sorts of different redactions, but
1: what is the sort of distinctive, central Thing that I, you say I, I is christianity cro- i think the cross does stand at the heart of it the idea of the cross and then the resurrection i mean unless you think that jesus is crucified and he rises from the dead then you're not really a christian i mean that's a, at the heart of it culturally speaking what's the, the thing that makes well, the western I, mind I, I think that there are two people who bookend this book who who both recognize penetratingly just how weird and unsettling the idea that God hung from a tree and was tortured to death and suffered the fate of a slave. And the first of those, of course, is Paul, the earliest author of Christian texts, written probably within a decade or so of the crucifixion of Jesus. And he describes it as a stumbling block to the Jews for obvious reasons and a scandal to everyone else. And it's a scandal to the Romans for the reasons th- th- that I've just been explaining. And Christians. Feel the kind of gallow taint that hangs over the fate of 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 Christ, as you said for a very long time i mean they they write about it, but they keep talking about the fact that he suffered this humiliating death as a cause of shame and embarrassment, and they kind of wrestle with it, and they cannot bring themselves to illustrate it really until a century after Constantine has converted called Constantine sees a cross in the sky. Even he and his heirs cannot bear to sponsor illustrations of Jesus actually hanging on the cross. And when, at the end of the fourth century, you do start to get images of it, Jesus is, you know, there. He looks like kind of incre- incredibly buff, kind of Love Island kind of thing. But, you know, he's a, he's a victorious athlete in the great contest of life. And it takes, you know, m- many more centuries, and specifically in the West, before you start to get images of him dead on the cross, torched on the cross, suffering on the cross. If you talk um, about athlete, then, and then of course it becomes it becomes. As I said, becomes desensitised. And then the other bookend is Nietzsche. I was going to and say, Nietzsche, Paul and Nietzsche seem to absolutely... Yes, and Nietzsche, yeah. like Paul, I think because he is a classicist who has a deep sympathy with the values of, of, of the ancient world that he correctly sees as being challenged and overturned by the coming of Christianity, is is, is appalled at the idea of a crucified God, in a way that many people in classical antiquity clearly were as well. And he feels it with a kind of visceral sense that most most people have, 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 have lost. I mean, and you read Paul, Nietzsche
0: as more or less saying
1: the reason Christianity is such a disaster is because it forsakes the
0: cruelty of the classical world. But Nietzsche is actually kind of a cruelty fan in your reading. He's, he's,
1: I, I think he is a, a, a fan of cruelty, but he's, he, he sees cruelty as, as the necessary expression of of how the strong impose themselves. So it's not necessarily cruelty for itself, but it's cruelty is a necessary corollary of the right and ability of the strong to do as they please and wish. And there is a kind of glory and splendor for Nietzsche in the exultant power that an Achilles demonstrates and displays. You know, Achilles is not Massively nice. worrying no, about nice. um, all the poor people that he's slaughtering—it's uh, not really a consideration—and and Nietzsche deeply regrets that. And of course, bastardized this then feeds into the Nazi assumption that the Jew Paul is the the great baneful influence who destroy, in Hitler's opinion, the Nordic race that, that that occupied Greece and Rome. And he Hitler blames the the, the, the collapse of Greek civilization, the collapse of Roman civilization on the kind of cancerous effect of Paul's universalism and Paul's obsession on the victim rather than on the kind of the, the blonde beast, the triumphant.
0: Well, maybe actually this is a good opportunity to go back to Paul because his universalism, you touched on, seems to be the great kind of hinge, as I understand it. You yeah, know, Paul I think is so. It's a yes. kind of franchise extension. Yes, you talk I, mean, about I mean, the, the thing Jewish the, the, monotheism. is that
1: universalism is very much in the air that Paul is 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 moving through because you have successive attempts to kind of re- responses to the fact that the world is getting larger and larger basically that it's globalizing you have the Persian one right back in the 6th and 5th centuries BC who see the world in moral terms, that the world is divided into good and evil, light and dark, truth and lie. And this is a kind of very fertile concept. Then you have the Greek ideal of of universalism, which has its most successful incarnation in, in the Stoics, who see the divine in the whole of the universe, and therefore present within every human being. And they call this spark of the divine synodesis. And Paul will take this word up. And essentially use it to mean what we call conscious, the idea of the law of God that's written on the heart that everyone can see. Then, of course, there's Roman universalism, this idea of a global order that's been brought under the rule of a son of a god who has bent swords into plowshares, who has uh, ushered the world into a a universal age of peace. Uh, Lions lie down with uh, lambs. So all this kind of imagery is there. And then, of course, you have the Jewish universalism and Jew, Jewish culture is a kind of bandwidth. And at one end, there is the, the notion that the God of the Jews is the God of Israel, that he he is essentially exclusively the patron of the descendants of Abraham. And then at the other pole, you have the idea that he is the God who has created heaven and earth and has fashioned every man and woman in his image. And there's potentially a massive dignity there. Paul, who is educated as a Pharisee, is absolutely steeped in the inheritance of the Jewish scriptures, moves from one end of the bandwidth to the other. To begin with, he's 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 on the kind of exclusionary wing of it. He ends up becoming this kind of radical universalist, and he arg- famously argues that there is no Jew or Greek, there is no man or woman, there is no slave or free in Christ well, Jesus. Well, an
0: extraordinary thing you talk about his letters, so he, you know, he says these dietary laws all belong to a previous age. The you know standard issues of sort of Jewish exceptionalism, the sort of things that hold together the tribe of Israel. He says, you know. Since Jesus, that's all That's all done. Yeah. And he's writing letters saying, yeah, you've
1: got some, some other Christians coming preaching that you have to yeah. kind of be Jewish and Christian. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. And, and so Paul's letters are, they're kind of dramatic monologues. They're like Cicero's speeches where you, you don't have the, uh, the the other side at all. And... They are kind of dramatic performances. You know, occasionally he says, I'm writing in capital letters here. I'm getting so cross. And, you know, he'll fire off rude jokes and all kinds of things. And 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 yet we're compressed within these letters. And there are only seven of them that most scholars accept w- were written by him. It's pretty much everything that makes Western society today distinctive. You can trace almost everything back to these. And, you know, there is nothing comparable to them in the entire canon of classical literature for for, for sheer influence. And they're, they're like depth charges placed under the fabric of everything that the Roman world had taken for granted. And we continue to feel the reverberations of those depth charges into the present,
0: and does you know the pre that as you say he's taking stuff from the Stoics he's also you know in an early chapter you do write very well, i think
1: I think he's taking stuff from the Stoics in the way that that we might be influenced by Marx without actually having read capital I think it's kind of part again it's kind of stuff that's it's, in, it's in the, it's, air, it's the yeah. dust in the air to pursue al- that also you do say
0: you know laying the foundations for you know Christianity being a sort of radical departure from you know, classical antiquity, that actually Jewish monotheism is a completely distinct and not-before-seen yeah, formulation.
1: The idea, th- th- there are all kinds of things that are distinctive about it, but in terms of the way that it, it, it impacts, or th- it's mediated through Christianity, I think the, the, um, the idea that there is a, a, a single deity Whose will and purpose and goodness therefore explains everything, so that if you can fathom the will of the deity, then you understand not just how you should live, but in the long run how and why the universe works. For instance, so there's a kind of Goldilocks quality to the uh, to, to to the Jewish and then the the, the, the Christian God, which is that he's all powerful; he can do anything he likes. You know, any number of miracles. But equally, this is a God who binds Himself with covenants. Yes, so he a binds with himself, God in will Yes, expressly. so essentially, he issues a contract with the, the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, and then again, Paul says, with the crucifixion and the resurrection, again there is a new covenant, and this covenant is written on the heart. And so, this idea that there are laws, that human rash, the spark of human rationality. that that is a part of God, that human beings have been created in his image. So they have this incredible dignity. Every human being has this dignity. Every human being, therefore, is worthy of a kind of inherent respect. And that spark that exists within humans in the long run will inspire Christian thinkers to imagine that if God has structured the cosmos by his laws, then the spark of reason that exists within humans should enable humans to fathom what those laws are, and the idea that the universe is structured according to laws that can be fathomed again is a kind of very, very radical and novel understanding that, in the long run, will culminate in what, in the nineteenth century, comes to be called science. And also, even back then, there's a sort of glint where you
0: you sort of say the idea, you know, to ancient Greeks that God, you know, or a god would have made a contract with human beings is kind of ridiculous. But you say it shapes the idea of kingship as well, that the sort of Jewish ideas of kingship were much more provisional and much less absolute, you know, in the sense that there is something above them. There's a sort of law, there's a set of
1: ideas. Yes. Greek, Greek philosophy obviously provides Christians with the idea that there is a kind of universal animating nous, intelligence that governs the world. But in the Aristotelian incarnation of this, it's very chilly and remote. It requires the love of human beings, but it offers no love back. Whereas Christians can say this God became a, a small baby. It suffered death for us. It loves you. And it loves you, not just you, King, Caesar, whatever. It loves you, scullery maid who's being raped by your master every day It's it, it loves you beggar in the street and it, it incubates the kind of radical idea that actually God may love the, the slave and the poor and the suffering more than he loves the king and so there is a kind of for autocracies even though it does offer a lot and this is why Constantine I, I mean Constantine is, is a man of enormous conceit and he aspires to rule the whole Roman Empire. And he basically wants to serve as deputy, therefore, for a single god. He doesn't want to be the, you know, beholden to a multitude of gods. He wants to be the deputy of one all-powerful god. And so he auditions a number of, of deities for this role. And it's, it's the Christian god who ultimately passes the audition. But by doing that, he is enshrining at the heart of the Roman Empire and therefore ultimately of the kingdoms in Western Europe that will be planted on the ruins of the Roman Empire. This idea that ultimately slaves matter more than kings and that the first shall be last and the last shall be first as Jesus himself said it. So ultimately in political terms it's akin to building San Francisco on the San Andreas Fault. Settled orders are going to be brought down at some point and this is what happens repeatedly, the kind of inspiration to to remake, to reform, to indulge in what in we the 11th talk about a series of revolutions.
0: Is, is hardwired into it. And is that, you know, someone said, well, you know, you're slightly having with your cake because, of course, you're saying that the, the defining quality of Christianity is that when it becomes its opposite and then... You know, turns itself upside down again and has another revolution, another reformation. But that's another, what a revolution
1: you know. literally means, of course is is that it is a turning of the wheel. And and this essentially, it, it it's very distinctively in the form of the Latin West, because what happens in the Latin West, as opposed, say, in, in Constantinople or, or later in Moscow, is that the Church is able to separate itself from the idea that every state in Eurasia, from the Atlantic to Japan, has always taken for granted, which is that if an autocrat has earthly power, then he also has a stake in the supernatural. And for a whole host of complicated reasons that, again, are deeply rooted in theology, in the 11th century, revolutionaries, I think you can call them that, reformers, heretics by the standards of earlier Christians, seize control of the most significant office in in Latin Christendom, the papacy. And they use it to force through a revolution which culminates in the idea that there is a dimension of the cyclum, and the cyclum means the, f- the flux of things, the span of human living memory, doomed to oblivion. And then there is the church, the bride of Christ, who therefore must be kept intact and pure and untainted by the pouring, grubby fingers of earthly monarchs. And it's the church that provides the religio, the bond, that will enable fallen humans to attain eternity. And so this idea that a kind of sovereign entity can exist over and above earthly realms is embedded in the fabric of of what will become Western culture. And it's very, very radical and weird and novel. And it, it over the course of the centuries, this will I- I evolve and bed down the idea that there are things called religions, religiones, and that there is a, a dimension of the secular. And this becomes really the kind of defining characteristic of Western society. And it's absolutely rooted in specific Christian assumptions.
0: Well, I'm very interested that you, you seem to say, which is I haven't seen said very clearly, Elsewhere, that essentially, the demand in in the West for a secular sphere has a thumb on the scales. Essentially, it's a Christian tilt, and it doesn't make sense in the context
1: of Islam or so many. No, of course Islam. not. Yeah. Of course not. It doesn't make sense in in. Actually, I mean, really, the the, the modern idea of the secular, you know, you Christians Christians in the Middle Ages wouldn't pro- really have understood it. I mean, they had a different, you know, it, it was understood theologically, but what happens then in 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 in, in the second process of reformatio in in the West, what we call the reformation the idea in in medieval Europe religio is distinctively identified with those who have a particular responsibility for bonding with god say monks and nuns and friars and so on but with the reformation that idea becomes democratized everyone has a religio a bond with god and so therefore you can start to ask the question well what is your religio what is your religion but equally it 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 fuses with another idea which is that there is something called what in 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 medieval Europe being called the secularia things of the cyclum this comes to be called the secular and religions are seen as things that are separate from the secular and so when the British go to India which they call Hindustan inhabited by people they call Hindus people say what is the religion of the Hindus I mean it's a mad question because the Hindus don't have a you know they don't have a religion it's this 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 idea of there being a religion and secular is is very Christian and in the context of the British it, Entirely Protestant, but that of course doesn't stop <laughs> the the British from constructing something modeled on Protestantism that they call the Hindu religion, what will come to be called Hinduism, and the the, the British do not convert. India to Christianity, and indeed they're very concerned not to. And so there's an Indian scholar who says that um, Christianisation proceeds in two ways: it proceeds through conversion, but it also proceeds through secularisation. And in that sense, the fact that when the British leave India becomes a, a secular republic, it's a it's a massive kind of trace element of the the influence of the the, the very Protestant way of understanding the world that the British had brought. And I think that that it's legitimate to look at what's happening in India now and Modi. To, to see what Modi is reacting against is that sense that the the idea of the secular is a kind of foreign imposition. And he's quite right, it is. So it's a,
0: you talk about Christianity in that context, you know, essentially dictating the shape of our thinking, the paradigms yeah. along which we're thinking, yeah. rather than necessarily the content. When it comes to, you know, which has been much touted back and forth, the Enlightenment, which, you know, the likes of Steven Pinker will say, you know, this was the great movement yeah. away from religion what's you know how do you see it is it a case that your idea that that it
1: actually follows the shape yeah. of the christian idea that yeah the world is decipherable yeah absolutely so if you go back to the 11th century this 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 revolutionary process of of, of reformatio what you see is a feeling that kings have to be humbled to ensure the freedom of of the mass of the people that ideologically armed warriors should go to the limits of the world to spread this message that the values of this revolution have to be imposed at the point of the sword and by lawyers and by uh, clerks who are educated in radical new institutions called universities, that those who oppose this process have to be kind of condemned as deplorables, and you see the same pattern happening in the Reformation. Only there, of course, it's the uh, it's the Catholic ch- the Roman Church that becomes the object of 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 this kind of revolutionary Im- impulse. And you see the same thing in the 18th century with the Philosoph and then with the French Revolution, only now it's Christianity itself. But the, the 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 degree to which essentially Christian ideas are starting to cannibalize themselves is evident in the very word enlightenment. Because if you go back to the Reformation, the idea of enlightenment is fundamental to it. You know, Luther's idea that it's the illumination of the heart that enables you properly to understand scripture is a a crucial aspect of what Protestantism is all about. And it also then feeds into the idea that superstition has to be banished, that idols have to be overthrown, that the people who walked in darkness have to be brought into a great light. But of course, all these ideas are themselves drawing on on Scripture. All of those ideas are deeply rooted in the 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 prophetic writings of of isaiah and and Jeremiah, the idea that priests you know should should be banished is there in the in the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal. The idea that there is something called religion which has you know which could count as superstition and has to be overthrown. None of this would have made any sense whatsoever to to people before Christianity. Yes so, he's so somewhere in GBC so that agnosticism even is distinctly possible it's impossible to the only way really to escape the impact of it as Nietzsche recognizes is basically to go back to the worship of power and we've see, we see what what happens when you know we know what, what a, a a truly praised christian regime would look like because we had it with the nazis
0: now this idea of exalting the weak and, you know, this being at the central the central kind of insight or one of the central insights of Christianity, is that unique? Does it come from nowhere? I'm thinking, I mean, no. something like Buddhism, you know, Siddhartha had to go well, out of his palace and walk among the... Yes, he does. I mean, Hinduism, in, in, in,
1: I've got, you know, in Hinduism, you have castes and in Buddhism, you have the idea that you proceed upwards through different incarnations so to to attain enlightenment you're at the top of a pyramid whereas the 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 radicalism of of um it's a spiritual pyramid rather than a yeah but if you do bad you get reincarnated as something lower down the chain so that implies that there are kind of gradations of value whereas in christianity everybody is created equal now that draws massively heavily on the on on the inheritance of 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 the hebrew scriptures of course i mean deeply rooted in that and it's an idea that the fusion of jewish and christian ideas will also obtain expression in um, in islam but i think that it has a particular potency in christianity because of the mythic power of the idea of god becoming a slave and suffering the, the worst fate imaginable it 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 enshrines it in a way that makes it a kind of the molten core of what people in christian society assume is right in a way that kind of transcends dictates or philosophies or whatever it it operates as a myth at the heart of our society
0: there's a peculiar way i mean which probably bears into your thesis that you find christianity on both sides of certain of these very very intense divides so i mean in the modern age you know apartheid you say had a kind yeah. of christian almost Sort of Calvinistic elect and damned rationalism, yeah. r- rationale behind it, and that was fighting against Christian universalism. And
1: yeah, Christianity in a way it structures paradox. You know, the the God who's a man, the immortal who suffers death. I mean, paradox lies at at, at the heart of it. But there are kind of involuntary paradoxes, and one of them is 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 actually kind of inherent in that that Pauline idea that there is no Greek or Jew, which. You know, it may sound Im- impeccably Benetton ad. You know, I mean, who doesn't love the idea of kind of universal brotherhood or sisterhood of man? But of course, as Paul himself knows, if you're a Jew, you may not want to have your distinctiveness dissolved into a kind of universalist mush. And so, right from the beginning, Christians have to face it: Well, what do you do with with people like the Jews who who, who don't want to have their distinctiveness dissolved? And the history of Christianity's relationship to the Jews is the kind of the great shadow that hangs over it. But it's not the only one because it it, it focuses the question of you have a message of peace and love and universal respect for human dignity. And and you you, you are wholly convinced that these are ideals that the entire world would would benefit from sharing in. But there are people who don't want to share in them. What do you do with them? Do you turn the other cheek? Or do you send in the lads? <laughs> uh, and, they come up with different and, answers over the over and there a, course and of are And there history. are different answers. And this is a, a tension that runs throughout Christian history. And is still very much attention tension that, for instance, shadows liberalism today. What, what do liberals do with people who don't want to be liberal? I mean, it's exactly the same problem that Alcuin and Charlemagne faced.
0: Will you describe the, the culture wars we're living through now as actually a civil
1: war between Christian
0: factions, which yes, I mean, comes seems as a great to me- surprise to many of those
1: involved? Well, so, so if we look at you know America at the moment, absolutely kind of you know roiled by these. What, what are the roots of gay rights, of feminism, of all, all these kind of movements that have developed since the sixties? Well, really, the, the the paradigm is provided by the civil rights movement of the fifties, which is patently rooted in theology. You know, Martin Luther King describes Jesus as an extremist for love. And, you know, there's no no Greek or Jew, there's no black or white. And so Martin Luther King's campaign is to awaken white Christians to the message of love that he feels that they've been ignoring to the fact that they are all created equally in the image of God. And this enshrinement of love as the great animating motion convulses American politics and society and leads to legislation that attempts to right the wrongs that have been done black Americans over, over many, many centuries. But it gets picked up by people who do not define themselves as Christian. So in the book, I write about the Beatles. And the Beatles, when they go to America, specify that they're not going to play in segregated stadiums. They are also playing music that owes a huge debt to the music of the black churches. So in every way, they are shaped by this kind of Christian American inheritance but they've also been brought up in an England that regards Christianity as kind of boring and dull and and the kind of thing that you know old women who keep their faces and jars by the door might go for, but not not if you're not if you're the Beatles. And so over the course of the sixties, with the Beatles as pied pipers, the idea of love gets divorced from the Christian moorings, and the Beatles can sing "All You Need Is Love" without any reference whatsoever to Christianity. And indeed, as the career of George Harrison shows, who, who becomes a Hindu you you could come you can come to regard Christianity as actually being repressive and standing in the way of a kind of universal love. And so these Christian ideals in the, over the course of the 60s come to be given value by to the degree to which they emancipated from Christianity. And of course the power of the civil rights movement means that other people who feel that they've been disadvantaged, gay people, women, whatever, are able to use this language and to launch campaigns modelled on Martin Luther King's campaigns. But these are more directly threatening to Christian orthodoxies as they've been understood traditionally by the churches over the centuries. And on top of that, you have the way in which, of course, love in English has a multiplicity of meanings, one of which is sexual love. And over the course of the 60s into the 70s, the idea that actually christian sexual ethics a boring repressive uh, a kind of blast of grey breath on the on on the kind of sexual anarchy of the roman world comes to be comes to root itself as well and when i was writing when i began the book i did think well this is actually a measurable change this is something that where 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 clearly christianity is on the retreat we live in a much more overtly sexualized world christian sexual teachings have you know basically have been Trampled down. That's something that, that, that where w- it does seem to be changed. But as I was writing, at the Harvey Weinstein affair broke. Yes, no, it's an extraordinary. End of and, Harvey and, and Harvey Weinstein, you, you know, the amazing thing about Harvey Weinstein is that nobody has really thought to say, "Well, what is the issue? Why shouldn't powerful men sexually abuse their inferiors? Because that's what most people in most societies have well, it taken seems to for rhyme. granted." I
0: don't know whether deliberately or not. Your description Nero's great. Back and all right at the beginning,
1: yeah, that was the echo. And if you look at Harvey Weinstein, he has a kind of echo of of Nero's jowls. And I think that the the irony of this is highlighted by the way in which the women's marches that were launched not just in the wake of Harvey Weinstein, but in uh, Trump's election, the most distinctive way that that women mu- on those marches dressed was in the red robes and white bonnets of of handmaids. And of course, the Handmaid's tale is is a, a, a parody, a satire on Puritanism, on on New England, on the founding of, of of America. But essentially, what what the women on those marches were demanding was that men behave more like Puritans, that they they display a sexual continence, that they they not jump, you know, women who may be inferior to them, that they don't just kind of force themselves on chambermaids or even actresses, but that they respect the bodily integrity of women and that idea that 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 women have a bodily integrity and that men should respect it and display a sexual continence hard to emphasize the degree to which this again you know this is not a given it would have made no sense to the roman world at all and in fact it you know it's it it derives again unsurprisingly from the letters of paul from the you know his teaching on on marriage that it it's the relationship of christ to his church this imposes on men the obligation to behave like christ i e don't just jump the scullery maid and it gives to women a status akin to that of the church that they have a kind of bodily integrity and this understanding of sexuality is like a kind of acid that over the course of the centuries eats away at everything that the Romans had taken for granted about it. And again, you, but but it, pe- time people may ideas. be tempted to think that something as basic as sexuality, that must be a kind of constant. It must be universal. It isn't at all. It's The Christian church programmatically rewires the way that men and women think about sex. And Me Too seems to me to demonstrate that we cannot buck that as easily as people in the 60s thought, that it remains part of our moral fabric.
0: You argue very persuasively that, you know, practically everything is influenced by Christianity I mean, obviously in, the West. You, in the West. And obviously that's helped by the fact that, as you write very painstakingly in the books, you know, at various times, teachers can mean one thing and they're opposite. It encounters, you know, it encompasses paradox. Was there anything you found that you went you know what, this doesn't fit my thesis. Darwinism.
1: Darwinism is the great intellectual development in Western history that owes nothing to Christianity and indeed overturns it. Because although the phrase survival of the fittest is not Darwin's own and and of course it's a simplification of what Darwin was actually saying, nevertheless I think it's incredibly telling that this is what his cousin articulates, and it's the understanding of Darwinism that gets picked up. And the idea that actually caring for those who may be disadvantaged, those who may be disabled, those who may have all kinds of, of, of problems in their life, that this is not a virtue, but may actually lead to all kinds of problems with the health of the race, if you want to frame it in that way, or the health of humanity, if you want to universalize it. These are ideas that eat away at Really kind of two core Christian assumptions, one being that all human beings have a kind of inherent dignity and the other that the strong have a duty of care to the weak. And again, to go back to the Nazis, that's what the Nazis pick up on. That's, those are the two fundamental Christian ideas that they seek to trample down. And they recognize the scale of what they are asking of the, of the German people to accept that humans are not all the same that actually there are Jews and Greeks and they are completely different and that those who are mentally or physically defective should be eliminated. Himmler sets out a 50-year program which will result in the eradication of Christianity, which effectively he sees as being akin to the destruction of the Jews. And it's, you know, we're talking about the paradoxes of Christian history. Probably the most grotesque paradox of all is that the Jews are targeted for genocide because Hitler blames them for Christianity, which is a kind of, you know, since the Nazis are drawing on the traditional inheritance of Christian anti-Semitism, I mean, that's a kind of peculiarly cruel, horrible thing. So they want to get rid of the Jews because because they're terrified that a new Paul will emerge otherwise and destroy the Thousand Year Reich. And then they've got to get rid of Christianity, which they see as a kind of cancer that's been left by the Jews. And and that's the plan. Now, of course, it doesn't work and Nazism gets destroyed. But the legacy of of Nazism, oddly, is that it, it, I think, has had a devastating effect on confessional Christianity because effectively... In the wake of the war, the trauma of of what Europe had been through meant that that from that point on, anyone in the West who wanted to know what, what the right thing to do was looks at the Nazis and does the opposite. So whereas previously we might have looked to the church and the figure of Jesus and, and, and the Bible for our sense of what is morally right, now we look to the figure of Hitler and do the opposite. And Nietzsche has the famous parable where he, he talks of, you know, God is dead, but his corpse is so enormous that it casts shadows. It's kind of riff of the platonic idea of people in the cave. And in a sense, since the war, the West has been looking at the, the shadows cast by the corpse of God and and those shadows are basically Hitler and, and, and the Nazis. And I think that that's why today, uh, whenever anyone wants to, to, to condemn something that they regard as being particularly pernicious or evil, the words fascist, Nazi or Hitler are almost inevitably going to, to, to crop up. But it kind of points to, I think, a potential problem that uh, people who want to uphold what are basically Christian values without Christianity face, which is how long does calling people Hitler maintain its its power? And if if it starts to lose his power, then what are the kind of resources that enable you to insist and infirm on the, on on things like the universal dignity of human beings or human rights or these kind of values that actually are as theological? as the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. We'll have to wait and see. Tom Holland, thanks very much. Thank you.